Welcome to Thyroid Cancer Update. This is medical oncologist Dr. Neil Love. I met with Dr. Ezra Cohn for an update on this rapidly evolving field. And to help set the stage for our discussion, Dr. Cohn presented several patients from his practice, beginning with a young man with medullary cancer. Our first case is a gentleman who, when he presented to us, was 52 years old and was diagnosed with medullary thyroid cancer back in 2002. He actually presented with a neck mass. That neck mass was biopsied, confirmed medullary thyroid cancer, and he underwent thyroidectomy. Of course, for medullary thyroid cancer, radioactive iodine is not effective. And on his pathology specimen, he had multiple involved lymph nodes. So a decision was made to undergo external beam radiotherapy as an adjuvant therapy post-total thyroidectomy in an effort to try and keep the disease from coming back. He did well for several years, and unfortunately, CT scans of his chest done because of a rising calcitonin, and we can talk about the utility of calcitonin in this disease in just a minute, but CT scans in late 2007, early 2008 began to show pulmonary nodules. These were growing, and definitively in April 2008, he had several pulmonary nodules, he had periaortic lymphadenopathy, and some evidence of skeletal metastases as well. Did he have any symptoms at that point? He had a cough, but he was not short of breath, and he didn't have any pain. Interestingly, he began to develop low back pain, and we can talk about that a little bit as well. But at the time that he presented to us, a cough was his primary symptom. He did also have intermittent bouts of diarrhea, and that diarrhea is common in medullary thyroid cancer. It's probably related to the increase in calcitonin. And when he presented to us, his calcitonin was in the 30,000 range, so clearly elevated, clearly abnormal. Before we get into his anti-tumor therapy, how do you approach in the interim while you're trying to get a response symptomatic management of diarrhea in these patients? Yeah, it can be very challenging. It can be very difficult. And in fact, for these patients, diarrhea is often, it's the most common symptom of metastatic disease and it can affect their quality of life and certainly their day-to-day activities. So the first step is over-the-counter antidiarrheal therapy, loperamide. Sometimes we'll switch to Lomotil. That, of course, requires a prescription. And if those don't work, then we can try Sandostatin and its analogs or Actreotide. Those are, I would say, effective in the majority, but not the great majority of patients. What did you do for him symptomatically at that point? Yeah, so fortunately, he had been on loperamide, and it was working fairly well. This is a gentleman who was very active, maintained his own business, continues to do so. He was an avid cyclist who would ride 50, 70, 80 miles in a day, very active otherwise in his day-to-day life. He had two young children. So this was a gentleman who not only wanted to control his disease, but for him, it was very important to maintain his quality of life. That cough sounds kind of concerning. As you sort of looked at where his disease was pathophysiologically, why do you think he was coughing? He clearly had pulmonary metastases. And what often happens in these patients with medullary thyroid cancer, and this is something we have to be mindful of when we look at the CT, is that it's not a single nodule or two nodules. When we look at these CT scans, they're often multiple. And if you read the reports, the radiologists will use the word innumerable pulmonary nodules that are very small, often millimeters in size. And this was exactly the situation with this gentleman. I would say if we had to count them, he probably had 20 pulmonary nodules. And I think that's the 
reason for his cough. And was he short of breath? And was his exercise tolerance decreased? So fortunately, he wasn't. Clearly, his oxygen demands were being met. He was not hypoxemic. He was very active and continuing to maintain his activity. So despite the cough, which was likely irritating some part of his airway, his pulmonary function was good to excellent. Now, one thing that we should point out is an unusual complication of pulmonary medullary thyroid cancer is amyloidosis. And sometimes we see a patient with this. This is a reactive amyloidosis to the pulmonary metastases and can be a cause of symptoms. And sometimes if you see a pattern that suggests that, it's worthwhile doing a biopsy because then you have to deal with the amyloid deposition separately or maybe differently than the disease itself. Do you see patients who develop sort of a lymphangitic or, you know, hypoxic syndrome from this? I mean, do people die of hypoxia? We do. It's not incredibly common with medullary thyroid cancer. We'll talk about differentiated thyroid cancer, and I seem to see it more in those patients than the medullary, but it's certainly possible. So when he then presented, which was, I guess, about two years ago with his cough and multiple metastases... How did you think through his options at that point? Right. So I think the first thing to consider when approaching these patients, and the first question you need to ask yourself is, does this patient need treatment? Because the reality is that many patients with metastatic medullary thyroid cancer, you'll see pulmonary nodules on their scan. You'll see lesions lighting up on their PET scan or their bone scan. Despite that, they can have very indolent disease, and their natural history can be measured literally in years And those patients are ones that probably don't require therapy, at least not immediately. So some of the parameters that we use are symptoms, and this gentleman had, the rate of progression, especially in the lesions that you can see on radiographs, and the doubling time of the calcitonin. And he actually had fulfilled all of those criteria. He had symptoms. His lesions were clearly progressing. He was developing new pulmonary nodules, and the periodic lymphadenopathy was growing, and his calcitonin was going up. It had doubled over the last year. So with all that in mind, this gentleman was somebody that appeared to require therapy now rather than watchful waiting. So that's the first question one should ask. And then, of course, the second question is, well, what do I have? What are the therapeutic considerations? What were the considerations at that point, and what are they today, I guess? So the nice thing that I can say about this disease is that the spectrum of therapies have changed dramatically, whereas I would have seen a patient like this maybe three, four years ago, and so a relatively short period of time, and I would have said, well, we can try cytotoxic chemotherapy, it's unlikely to work, and the alternative would be a phase one clinical trial, and also unlikely to work, but let's give it a try. Well, that changed, and fortunately for this gentleman, it changed right about the time that he came to us. We began to realize that, and we had known for a long time, incidentally, that one of the important biological features of medullary thyroid cancer, both the hereditary and the sporadic type, are RET mutations, R-E-T. RET is a receptor-tarsing kinase, and it's constitutionally activated in medullary thyroid cancer. In fact, it's pathognomonic of the familial syndromes, that is multiple endocrine neoplasia 2 and familial hereditary medullary thyroid cancer. You cannot be diagnosed with a familial syndrome without having a RET mutation. It also occurs in about 75% of sporadic medullary cases. So we knew that, and we knew that for a long time, but we didn't have agents to target RET until fairly recently. And many of these multi-kinase inhibitors, and I'll list a few for you in just a minute, happen to have RET 
as one of the proteins that they inhibit. And sure enough, when this gentleman came into our clinic, we had a clinical trial with one such agent, sunitinib, that not only targets VEGF receptor, platelet-derived growth factor receptor, but also RET. And we had just started a clinical trial with this for patients with medullary thyroid cancer. So what happened at that point? Yeah, so we talked to him about it, obviously, and really with the lack of efficacy of any other treatment, especially cytotoxic chemotherapy, he elected to go on study. And I'm happy to say he's done extraordinarily well. He actually typifies some of the things that we see. So first, most of the patients treated with these newer agents actually do well. They either have stabilization of their disease or they have actual response, actual tumor shrinkage. He fell into the latter category. He had tumor shrinkage. He had a dramatic drop in his calcitonin from the 30,000s to the hundreds. He's now in the range of about four or 500. He had a resolution of his cough. He had a resolution of his diarrhea. So symptomatic improvement as well. And what's interesting is that we often don't see the responses right away in these patients. In fact, for this gentleman, it took about three, four months to begin to see a response. And that response became maximal at about six or eight months. So it took a little bit to see that, not typical of what we see in other diseases with cytotoxic chemotherapy. And I'm happy to say he's maintained that response now for two years. What about the dose and schedule of sunitinib? Yeah, in this clinical trial, we've used the regular dose, that is the approved dose, the 50 milligrams, four weeks on, two weeks off. Again, an interesting sideline with this patient is on the two weeks off, just at the end of those two weeks, his symptoms begin to return. So he begins to cough a little bit more, his diarrhea gets a little bit worse, he needs to start taking his loperamide again, and then as soon as he gets back on the drug, those symptoms go away. So I truly believe that the drug is doing something here. So it's the regular schedule. Other clinical trials now have been reported that use a continuous schedule of sunitinib. They appear to be just as effective. In fact, I can tell you, in terms of efficacy, we just reported this study at this year's ASCO, the final results, and we reported about a 35% response rate and an additional 40% of patients who had stable disease at 24 weeks or longer. And one of the criteria for entering this study was evidence of progression within six months of study entry. So I think the stable disease in these patients is actually meaningful. In other words, the majority of patients entered on this trial either had stoppage in the growth of their disease or actual shrinkage in their visible tumors, which I think is a nice result. You know, a lot of people have found challenges in using sunitinib, for example, in renal cell cancer. How did this man do in terms of fatigue and other problems? Yeah, no doubt about that. So we're happy about the efficacy, but we do have to be mindful of the toxicity. This gentleman did well. He did experience fatigue. He experienced the hand-foot syndrome that's common. He early on experienced some of the rash, but that actually got better on its own. But he's been able to tolerate it. And as I said, he's very active and he's been able to maintain that activity. About a third of patients on our study did actually require dose reductions because of one toxicity or another. So it's not completely a benign drug, and we have to be mindful of that. And what's nice to say is that if you're reducing this drug for the right reasons, that is toxicity, the efficacy does not appear to be impacted. Now, one of the things that you reported I thought was really interesting, relevant to what you were talking about before, was you genotype these patients for RET mutations. Can you talk about what you saw there? Yeah. So two interesting observations there. First of all, that in line with what we expected, the majority of these patients had RET mutations, either germline or somatic RET mutations. 
one thing that was interesting is that there's a red mutation at 918 that is associated with a worse prognosis. That's been well described for over a decade. We saw the majority of patients that had red mutations had the mutation at that amino acid. So suggesting that the patients with the worst prognosis are the ones that are getting on these studies. And intuitively, that makes sense because they're the ones that are destined to have progressive disease. And then the other interesting observation, although it was a small sample size, was that patients with RET mutations actually appear to have a higher chance of responding. Now, that doesn't mean that if you didn't have RET mutation, you didn't benefit because patients without RET mutations when we compared them to the RET-mutated patients with respect to progression-free survival, so how long were they on the drug, how long did they benefit, those numbers appeared to be identical. So what we concluded was that there may be other mechanisms operational, in fact, there certainly are, that maybe with the RET-mutated patients, we're targeting RET and we're seeing responses. And for the wild-type RET patients, maybe sunitinib is working along the VEGF receptor pathway or another target that's stabilizing the disease for a durable period of time. Now, do you think the disease sort of fits the model of, quote, an oncogene addiction like CML or EGFR-mutated non-small cell lung cancer? I think for some patients it does, and maybe these 918 mutation patients it does so, but I would say that the RET mutation is neither necessary nor sufficient. So it doesn't explain the whole story. It may explain some of the profound responses that we see, but it doesn't exclude patients from benefiting. So what other agents, particularly TKIs, have been looked at? Yeah, very exciting data at this year's ASCO. Two other studies, one of them with a drug called Vendetinib, also a RET inhibitor in addition to epidermal growth factor receptor and VEGF receptor. This was a randomized trial, international, largest study ever performed in medullary thyroid cancer, randomized to placebo. Progression-free survival was the primary endpoint, and the curves separated dramatically. In fact, the median progression-free survival in the experimental arm had not been reached compared to the placebo arm, which was about a year. Response rate was also around 35%. So dramatic difference in the primary endpoint with vendetinib, and we're hopeful that vendetinib actually will get approved by the FDA for refractory medullary thyroid cancer. Any way to indirectly compare, or are there any studies directly comparing, for example, sunitinib with vendetinib or any other TKI? No, there aren't. You know, this is, a, as I said, a fairly uncommon disease, in fact, a rare disease, and those studies just haven't been done. The patient numbers just would be difficult to make those studies happen. There is a third agent that was presented this year's ASCO that I should mention, and that's XL184. And again, we see the same thing. Uh, Nice response rate, also around in the 30% range. Lots of patients with stable disease or some degree of tumor shrinkage and very long progression-free survival in those patients. That was a non-randomized study, just like the sunitinib. Now, what was seen in the Vandetinib study in terms of toxicity? I remember from lung cancer, the kind of interesting thing about EGFR side effects and VEGF side effects, and it kind of depended on the dose. I think that was Vandetinib, wasn't it? Good memory. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And what did they see here? Very typical toxicity, nothing surprising. As I said, the progression-free survival in the experimental arm had not been reached. And there are some patients on vendetinib, in fact, many patients on vendetinib for up to two years or more than two years when the study was reported. So clearly, the agent is feasibly administered. Clearly, it's tolerable. The dose was the 300 milligram sort of standard dose, but the toxicity profile was exactly what we saw with other cancers. No surprises. But again, did you see EGFR things like rash or more VEGF stuff like hypertension or both? 
saw both. With vandetinib, the EGFR toxicities are not as profound as certainly the monoclonal antibodies, let's say cetuximab or panitumumab. So they tend to be a little bit better tolerated. There's another skin toxicity, photosensitivity, that's actually fairly common, probably about a third of patients that are exposed to the drug. But if you warn patients and if you tell them to stay out of the sun, then they're usually okay. So if vandetinib becomes available, how are you going to approach treating a patient like this one? Of course, he did great on sunitinib, but in general, how are you going to think through whether you're going to use sunitinib or vandetinib or anything else that you might want to consider, just those two? It's really interesting. There is probably one other drug, and that's serafinib. There are reports of serafinib working in medullary thyroid cancer. So now, potentially, we've got a few drugs, three of them, if vandetinib gets approved, three of them that will be commercially available. I think the data, because of the randomized trial, would support vandetinib as the first choice. Sunitinib appears to be effective, serafinib appears to be effective, but none of those have been compared to placebo. So I think vandetinib, if it gets approved, should be the first choice. Until it gets approved, I think either sunitinib or serafinib are reasonable agents to use for patients in this disease. There is now an ongoing phase three trial with XL184, again, versus placebo. That trial is progressing very nicely, should be complete by the end of this year or early next. And very soon, we may have another approved drug in this disease. I got to say, just to take a step back, thinking about this man, you know, biking along the highways or whatever with, you know, metastatic disease, it sounds pretty scary there in the way he presented, you know, two years later on an oral agent doing as well. Pretty interesting. Yeah. You know, a very nice story and not an atypical story, which is very gratifying when you're treating these patients. I guess one of the challenges with these kinds of tumors is the lack of patients. How many cases of medullary are there a year in the United States? Yeah, the estimates vary, but it's anywhere from 1,200 to as much as 4,000. So it's an uncommon disease. So it's amazing that so much research is getting done on this. How about your 64-year-old man, the second patient? Yeah, so completely different story here and completely different disease, really. We'll move from medullary thyroid cancer to a much more ominous disease, and that is anaplastic thyroid cancer. This is a gentleman that presented to us with a very large left neck mass. In fact, so large that it was difficult to measure because it was moving into his mediastinum. And best measurements we could get were about 12 centimeters. And with risk to his airway, clearly he was having dysphagia and a life-threatening event. So when he presented to us, we had to move quickly. In fact, we did so. We started him on chemotherapy radiation. As you can imagine, the size of his mass did not allow resection. He was clearly unresectable. We biopsied it, confirmed anaplastic thyroid cancer, and started him almost within a week on combination chemotherapy radiation. Clinically, could he tell you sort of how quickly it was growing? Yeah. You know, sometimes you don't believe these patients when they come into your clinic and you see these enormous tumors and they tell you this came up within the last few weeks. But after seeing quite a few anaplastic thyroid cancers, because, you know, we have an interest in it down at the University of Chicago, you begin to believe the story. And literally, he said two months ago, he had nothing palpable and no symptoms. And within two months, he had developed, within weeks, really, he had developed a 10 to 12 centimeter left neck mass. And just side note, how many cases of anaplastic thyroid cancer are there a year? That's another good question. I'm afraid I don't have a good number for you because, unfortunately, most of them get classified with the other thyroid cancers, and most of our registries don't differentiate. 
it's probably in the range of 2,000. How many new cases a year do you see at the University of Chicago? We see probably in the range of about 12 to 15 new cases a year. Wow. And that's a busy center. Yeah, no, I mean, that's a lot of cases. So what happened with this man? Yeah, so in the initial workup, we also did scans, both a neck CT and a chest CT. Fortunately, he had only local and local regional disease. He had no evidence of metastatic disease. So as I said, we initiated chemotherapy radiation. And the nice part of the story is that he had a very nice response. His tumor began to shrink right away. Incidentally, anaplastic thyroid cancer is the only cancer that I've ever seen that has grown on chemotherapy radiation or radiation. It can be very refractory. That was not the case in this gentleman. This gentleman's disease was responsive. At the end of treatment, he still had a neck mass. It measured now about three to four centimeters, so he achieved a good partial response. We then took him to the operating room for resection. The thyroid was clear. He had no evidence of thyroid cancer in the primary site. His neck node still had evidence of cancer in it, but the rest of the dissection was essentially clear of disease. So at the end of treatment, at the end of that resection, we were able to render this gentleman with no evidence of disease, which is obviously the first step to treatment. And I know you used paclitaxel 5-FU and hydroxyurea with the radiation therapy. Did you treat him post-op? We just observed him at that point. He had been through a lot and obviously needed time to recover. And in truth, we don't have any treatments that would serve as adjuvants for us or anything that we know of that can reduce the risk of recurrence. Clearly, this was a gentleman who was at risk for recurrence. By nature, anaplastic thyroid cancer is a difficult disease to treat. And with residual disease in the next specimen, in the resection specimen, that puts him at a high risk without a doubt. High risk or close to 100%? I would say probably about 70%, not 100%. Interesting. So what happened with him? Well, we continued to follow him. His local regional disease was controlled Unfortunately, he developed pulmonary lesions about two months after completing therapy. We repeated a CT scan about two months after first noticing them, and in fact, they were growing. So likely, these represent new pulmonary metastases. So what are you thinking you might want to do? Yeah, and we've discussed several options with him. Cytotoxic chemotherapy in the form of doxorubicin plus minus cisplatin does have a response rate in this disease. It's probably somewhere in the range of about 20, optimistically 30%. What's interesting is the VEGF receptor inhibitors, so some of the same drugs that we were talking about with medullary thyroid cancer, also appear to be effective in anaplastic. Now, the numbers are small. You have to realize that these patients with anaplastic thyroid cancer get put on these studies or anecdotally get treated with these patients, but we're talking about four or five patients on a large 30, 40, or even 60 patient trial. But having said that, it's clear that there are some patients who can have responses. And we've had some experience with a couple of these drugs in patients with anaplastic, and we've had some nice results as well. So I've talked to him about trying one of these multikinase inhibitors. In fact, we have another clinical trial that he's interested in. I talked to him about cytotoxic chemotherapy, but I think we'll probably put him on one of the multikinase inhibitors. How about your 58-year-old man? This is a gentleman who has more typical, well-differentiated thyroid cancers is the category that he would fall in. He initially presented in March 2003 with a thyroid mass. Thyroidectomy revealed a follicular carcinoma, which is important because we know that the follicular subtype of well-differentiated thyroid cancers does have a worse prognosis. 
And then there are even subclassifications of follicular that tend to do even worse, specifically the Herthel cell. Age is also an important factor, and that we have to keep in mind in terms of subsequent therapy. Clearly, young patients, and by young, we define that as less than 45, with papillary thyroid cancer have an excellent prognosis, and 95% of those patients are cured. This is a gentleman that, at the beginning, had some poor prognostic features. His age, 58, his histology, follicular, and he had lymph nodes involved as well in the neck dissection specimen. So with that in mind, he was rightly given radioactive iodine, postoperatively ablative dose, and he did fairly well until later that year when he experienced or he was noted to have a new neck mass, indeed confirmed on radiographs, and he underwent neck dissection followed by a second course of radioactive iodine. Again, he did fairly well. And now, again, so typical story of these patients with well-differentiated thyroid cancer, the natural history of this disease can be measured in years. And it was only five years later that he represented now with new onset rib pain, radiographs confirmed, metastatic lesion. He wasn't in our institution at the time. His treating physician elected to resect the rib lesion. And I would agree with that because at that time, it was the only site of definite disease and it was causing him symptoms. Decided to resect that. Unfortunately, subsequent stands revealed uh, pulmonary metastases and in fact, new bone lesions, some in his cervical vertebral spine C6 and some in his long bones. Just a footnote there. How often do you see that you can remove a MET and the patient might stay stable for a few years? Yeah, and it's a good point to make because if it's a solitary metastatic lesion, believe it or not, about 20% of those patients may never or will never develop another lesion. So it's worth undertaking. And because, as we were saying, these cancers can often be indolent, even if the disease recurs, it may not recur until years later. So if it's a solitary nodule, I would say even if it's two or up to three metastatic foci, and you've exhausted radioactive iodine, as this gentleman had, another note to make was he was no longer uptaking radioactive iodine. So that was no longer a modality we could use. So if they've exhausted radioactive iodine, it's worthwhile pursuing resection or local therapies to these single foci or few foci. Another footnote, what is the spectrum of sites of metastatic disease that you see? And what about brain mets? Yeah, for well-differentiated thyroid cancer, it can metastasize to strange places. So you have to be aware of that. But by far, the most common metastatic sites are the lung and the bones. By far, 90% of patients. But it can, I've seen it metastasize in very strange areas. The brain being not unusual, other soft tissues, other organs. So don't rule it out just because it's not the lungs and the bones. So what happened next? So he then was referred to us. And at that time, we were exploring, again, some of these multikinase inhibitors. And we first elected to use radiation to some of his metastatic lesions. The C6 lesion we were worried about, we radiated that. In fact, one of the metastatic foci to the left humerus was on the verge of pathologic fracture. So for that lesion, we actually elected to do internal fixation and then subsequent radiotherapy. So the first thing we wanted to do was stabilize his bony disease as best we could. Then we talked to him about systemic therapy. And to make a long story short, and we had the same discussion similar to the gentleman with anaplastic thyroid cancer about cytotoxic chemotherapy, but we eventually settled on multikinase inhibitors and specifically in this gentleman, serafinib. And what happened? He's done well. He's been on serafinib now for a few months. 
recognizing that this was not a patient who had indolent disease. His disease was clearly progressing, and I would say progressing very rapidly. And I'm happy to say that he's been on serafinib now for about four months, and so far so good. He's had stable disease and has done well. How about tolerability of the serafinib? What I do with serafinib is I actually start patients at a low dose and work up. And that may not be the practice that everybody engages in, but I found that it's a little bit easier to manage the early toxicities. So I started this patient, as I typically do, on 200 milligrams twice a day, watch their blood pressure very closely, see them back in two weeks. I then increase them to three pills a day, see them back in two weeks after that, and then I go up to the full dose of 400 milligrams twice a day. He's on that dose. He's got some of the typical side effects, the hand-foot syndrome. He's got a little bit of fatigue. But other than that, he's actually doing fairly well. This may be a naive question, but you see hypertension with serafinib? Yeah. One of the class effects of all these drugs, so be it serafinib, sunitinib, vandetinib for that matter, is hypertension. We see it in about a third of patients with the VEGF receptor inhibitors. You have to be mindful of it. If you don't treat it, patients can get into serious trouble with malignant hypertension, with even leukoencephalopathy. So it is something that you have to monitor very carefully when you're starting these patients. Yeah, I'd heard about hypertension with sunitinib, but I've never heard about it with serafinib. Is it just as frequent and just as much of a problem? Yeah, it's just as common. The numbers are almost identical. Interesting. What about the hand-foot that you'd see in these patients. Can you talk about clinically how it presents? Do you do anything preventively, therapeutically, other than change the dose? Yeah. So it's typical hand foot. It's erythema of the palms and the soles. It can blister. It can fissure. They can have fissures at the fingertips. It is more common in people who are active, who use their hands at work or who are on their feet all day. And it can be debilitating. It can dramatically affect people's day-to-day activities. It's never going to be life-threatening, but it can be so bad that people can't walk, that people can't work. And in fact, for serafinib, it's probably the most common reason that we have to reduce the dose. In terms of prevention, there's nothing that I know of. We tell people to obviously take care of their skin, to use a moisturizing cream, but most importantly, to let us know if they're experiencing trouble because They don't have to suffer along with this. There are things that we can do. The first thing that we try to do is use creams with a low concentration of anesthetic in them to either the palms or the soles. And then if that doesn't work, and unfortunately often it does not, and they're still suffering, we have to reduce the dose. What do we know in terms of clinical research data on serafinib and thyroid cancer, and particularly follicular and papillary? Yeah, there's now quite a bit of literature. It's all in the form of non-randomized phase two trials, but there's at least three reports now. And what's interesting is that the efficacy is almost identical. 20% response rate, this is resist-defined. About another 50%, the range is about 40 to 60% of patients who have durable, stable disease. So it looks like it's quite an effective agent. Now, none of these trials are randomized, so we don't know what placebo would have done. But some of these studies, and this is getting to be the norm in terms of clinical trial planning for these patients, they required progression upon enrollment. So one has to begin to believe that if a patient's disease was progressing within six months or 12 months of starting a drug, and a year later they still have stable disease, you begin to believe that the agent has some efficacy, there's some meaningfulness there. Moreover, there is now a international phase three trial testing serafinib versus placebo in differentiated thyroid cancer. So we should have some definitive studies in the near term. 
What are some of the new studies that are coming out or trials that are maturing, treatment strategies that maybe we should be on the lookout for in thyroid cancer? Yeah, so we talked about the phase three trials that are ongoing, the XL184 in medullary thyroid cancer, serafinib in well-differentiated thyroid cancer. What investigators now are beginning to think about is those patients who are going to be refractory to the VEGF receptor inhibitors. They're effective drugs. They're much better than we had a few years ago. But we're beginning to see that wave of patients who now are progressing on these agents. And we need to begin to think about those. We know actually a lot about the biology of both medullary, as I spoke about, and differentiated thyroid cancer. And some of the agents that have been tried, for instance, AZD6244 is a MEK inhibitor, M-E-K. We know that many of the genetic aberrations in differentiated thyroid cancer signal down that pathway. There was a study reported at this year's ASCO that showed one response and about 40% of patients with stable disease. So not dramatic, but it gives you a hint that there may be something to build on there. You know, we're in a different era, clearly, for the treatment of these patients with respect to medullary, anaplastic, and differentiated thyroid cancer. And whereas even a few years ago, it was a very somber discussion that I would have with patients presenting in our clinic, now it is very optimistic. We've had patients on these agents literally for years going about their day-to-day lives, and I think it's changed the way we approach this disease dramatically.